Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. So today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32. I'm going to kind of continue where we left off last week. Uh, in sorts. I'm going to just give like a, a little illustration, not a little illustration. It's the biggest, one of the biggest illustrations in scripture. And, uh, and for those of you who, who like unpacking a whole lot of material, uh, we're going to unpack some material today. Okay. And I can't possibly be exhaustive in everything that I want to say. So I've been very, very particular about what I've eliminated. So as I go through this, yes, there's a lot more to this story than we're going to get to today. I recognize it. Uh, but, uh, but I believe that the Lord wants us to, to see some specific things in regard to him searching our hearts and what that means. The question that, that we were left with last week was, you know, since God searches our heart, and, and what does God know? But God knows everything, right? And he searches our hearts, and there's nothing that, there's nothing that he doesn't know. And, and God searches our hearts so that he can turn our hearts, reveal our hearts to us so that we can see more clearly the direction that we need to go in order to pursue him. And so that's pretty clear. But one of the questions, and we won't get to the full answer of it today, is like how long will God be patient with those who won't turn their hearts? Like is there an end to his patience? Is there an end to God's grace? And so uh, today we're going to look at Exodus 32 eventually. So when I say right after the Passover and the death angel, you know we're going back some time. And, uh, and so we're going to cover some ground. But I'm going to lay just a little bit of groundwork so that we can get the full context of what's going on. I think a lot of times we go into preaching and we don't give the full context so the text can say pretty much whatever we want it to. And I think that's a very, very dangerous thing. We need to be able to understand what they understood and process it the way they were processing it, not just, not just a few verses of Scripture. So right after the Passover, the death angel came and he took the firstborn. You already are fully aware of that. Every house in Egypt was affected, but not the Israelites. And if they didn't have the blood on the doors, they, were, they lost their, their firstborn. And Pharaoh finally let Israel go, and then he changed his mind, and he chased them all the way to the Red Sea. And if you remember, you know, they're, they're between the sea and, and the army, and God told Moses to raise his staff, and God parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites walked through on dry ground, and Egypt's army was, was drowned. It's very important for us to see what the Israelites are seeing here. When God speaks, his voice is shrouded, but they can hear clearly Moses' voice. And so then God led his people uh, in, in the wilderness by using a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And God led them all the way through the wilderness to a base of Mount Sinai. And God shows up at the top of the mountain in a, in a wild cloud full of lightning and thunder and blasting trumpets. And God speaks to the people in the pres, in the, to, uh, to Moses in the presence of the people. And I want you to listen to what he says. I'm going to read a few verses in Exodus chapter 19. They should be on the screens behind me. Now, this is the Lord speaking. Very important. I'm going to draw some of this out in, in a moment. He said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. 
You see this contingency promise? If you, then I. Very important. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Tell them Moses. And so God reminds them of the big picture, the big picture of redemption. He takes them all the way back to God's redemptive plan, his promise to Abraham, blessed to be a blessing. My people are blessed to be a blessing. And if you will be faithful to me, I will continue to use you to be a blessing to the nations. Shooting down to verse 20, this may not be there. Moses said to the people, Moses said to the people, do not fear For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. You see this? God's testing is actually a gift to keep them from sin. But the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I had talked with you from heaven. Listen to this. You shall not make of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. Now, if you jump over to, verse, uh, to chapter 20, God is about to give the Ten Commandments to Moses, to all of the people. Notice how he begins in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We need to remember this because God continues to identify himself as the one who brought them out. When Moses responds to the people, he reminds them that God is the one who brought them out. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. So who, who brought the people out of slavery? God did. Whose God is he? The God of Israel, right? He's made it very, very clear to them every time he's addressed them. So then Moses and God have this long, detailed conversation. Moses writes it all down. If you'd like to read it, it's, it's all right there. It's the covenants that includes the Ten Commandments. And uh, it's, it's very riveting. We don't have time to go through it and show Jesus through all of it. But Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 7, he took the book of the covenant. This is the completed book, right? Took the book of the covenant and read it as he was here in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Does that leave any room for doubt? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be, what? Obedient. Then in verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud... And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of God. Can you imagine seeing that? You know that Moses is up there and all you see is this consuming fire, this devouring fire. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. That conversation takes place between chapters 25 and 31. Again, we can't cover all that material. But 
what God has said Moses did and the people agreed to do. That's what I want us to focus on today. God tells Moses how to build the tabernacle. He writes it all down on stone tablets. And while that conversation is going on in the midst of those 40 days is happening under this scary, wild, fiery cloud, something is brewing at the base of the mountain. There is doubt. There is dissension. There is sowing of discord. There is siding of camps. And that's where we come to Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 is where we'll begin. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, the high priest, and said to him, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Do you catch this? Who did they say brought them out of Egypt? Moses. Who delivers us from slavery? Moses. No. They completely missed it. The people are afraid of what's going on now that Moses is is gone. I mean, let's just put yourself, again, I don't know that we can understand Scripture unless we understand it from their viewpoint. But if we sit there and we look and we see that our beloved leader is up on Mount Sinai, And there's this devouring fire resting on top of it. What do you suppose for 40 days has happened to our leader? Surely he's dead. We don't know what's happened to this this Moses. He's dead, right? Surely that's what they think. Or maybe he's comfortable. Maybe he's not coming back. Maybe he got a promotion. Who could go into a fiery cloud and survive? We're going to need a new Moses. That's what they think. We're going to need a new Moses. So, verse 2, Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool that he just happened to have in his pocket, I guess, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now this is a clue for us. Israel didn't become anti-God because Moses was gone. They didn't turn their eyes away from God, but they were now modeling bull worship. Apis, the the God of Egypt, they had fashioned a similar likeness. After all, for generations they had seen worship to this God. Even before that, they had seen Baal, which had been worshipped by the Canaanites as this bull God, this calf. They were substituting what they couldn't see for a God they could see. I want to read Exodus 24, 7 again. And then he took the book of the covenant and reading it in the hearing of the people, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Maybe you can, I'm not going to have the time to overlay every application here, but I want you to try to kind of put your thought process on top of theirs. 
Is there ever a time when you make a vow and you feel really good and things are going in a positive direction and you say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be more faithful in this area. I'm going to spend more time doing this. I'm going to give more of this. I'm going to, you feel good about it in that moment. And what does it take for you to start kind of moving backwards? What, what, what begins to happen when you start relenting from those vows? What did it take for them to break that obedience? Misunderstanding of God? Misunderstanding of the message, misunderstanding of the messenger. I guess they thought since Moses was gone, the deal was off because their commitment was only attached to the obedience of Moses, not their own. As long as Moses was there, they were safe. But if you will notice from the very beginning, Israel never had a personal relationship with God. In fact, when God would say, come near, no, we will not come near. (laughs) You're terrifying. We're going to send our emissary. We're going to send Moses. He will be our mouth. He will be our advocate. He will be our ambassador. And Moses comes back, and he continues to be this bridge between Israel and God. And I propose to you today that our greatest hindrance of the growth and the consistency of our faith, our obedience, is fear. Because Israel here is terrified. It's always the reason that they don't want want to go near God. And here is no difference. And fear is proportional to who or what we surround ourselves with. These are really key points for our own own application. Fear. So I want you to think about where you are disobedient in life. And I, I want you to do me kind of a, give me a, a little bit of, uh, of, of grace here. Where you are least obedient, try to understand what it is that you're afraid of. Don't just think about obedience or disobedience or what you prefer or don't prefer. Think about some areas in your life where you know God has called you forward, but you're resistant. And I want you to try to identify what is it that I'm afraid of? Is it an unforgiving spirit? What are you afraid of? Is it, is it maybe mission work? Is it stepping out into discomfort? Is it, is it making a step in a direction that you know God is calling, but I'm just not ready yet? What is it that we're afraid of? And then I'll also follow up with this. Fear is proportional to who or what you spend your time with, the voices that you allow to empower you, to influence you. We will do whatever it takes to get out of the moment if the moment is filled with fear. They, whoa, I think I hit a sweet spot there. That was good. Where has that been for like years? I don't even know where, oh, that must have been up here. Lord? (laughs) If it's a consuming fire, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to stand over at the piano. Uh, no, wait, fear. I'm going to step into it right here. Lord. <laughs> that was not planned, by the way. But they were concerned about their direction. Where do we go now? They were concerned about their provision. Because manna was tied to Moses. The pillars were tied to Moses. Their protection was tied to Moses. Both bull-looking gods were at the very center of a fertility cult. All of them were tied to fertility, right? 
It was thought that they guaranteed fertile fields if they were pleased, fertile herds, and even fertile families. Where do we go from here? We need a God that can help us multiply. We need a God that can protect us by numbers. We need a God who can provide from the dust of the earth. They're thinking ahead. But rather than having a relationship with God, they only had a relationship with Moses. You see, the gods of the ancient world were gods you could manipulate to get what you wanted. You offer them right sacrifices and you could have a bumper crop or a large family if they were pleased with you. Or so they thought. I also believe that sometimes Satan would work that way as well. He would do some things to allow them. I mean, after all, if everything you trusted in always failed, you probably wouldn't trust it anymore. Sometimes the spirit world is a complicated world where sometimes Satan gives you the desires of your heart too. It's at the end of it, who gets the glory for it? They hadn't learned to fear the Lord. They'd learned to fear slavery. They cried out. You know, I was going back and I was reading through that. Every time they cried out, there's no crying out to the Lord. Just crying out. The Pharaoh had died and they start crying out. Maybe this is our chance for another Pharaoh to give us a little relaxation. Crying out, miserable. The Lord heard their cries, though I'm not sure they were directed to him. But they were his people that he made a covenant with. And he went to Moses and he said, I've heard the cries, not they have cried out to me. Honestly, I'm not sure. That's not what I'm teaching. What I am saying is, I'm not sure at what point Israel had a relationship with God. He had a relationship with them. And he's drawing them to himself. And through that, there are going to be some times where God is going to have to teach them some things the hard way to turn their hearts. Because though they're free from slavery... They're not free from themselves just yet. Just, just a quick cursory thought through my life. I think about how much time we spend alleviating fear from our life. I know we probably don't think of it in terms of that. It's like, well, how can I get out of you know, this fearful situation? I don't think most of the time we're really that cognizant, but it's one of the, one of the reasons that we, we spend money the way we spend money. If you think about it, look back at how you spend money. We spend money because of fear. We protect ourselves because of fear. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. I'm just saying we spend a lot more time protecting ourselves than we realize. It's why we have big uh, retirement accounts. It's why we plan for the future. We don't get caught off guard. It's why we invest in this, that, or the other. We're always trying to make sure. It's we, we're always trying to work, work our life in such a way so that we can control things to minimize getting caught off guard. We orchestrate backup plans, fearing for worst-case scenarios. So here's what I, here's what I want to offer you today. And I'm searching this out in my own heart. But whatever you trust when you're afraid, and you may have to look at multiple things, multiple areas and issues in your life, but whatever you are trusting when you're afraid, that's your God. 
Whatever you trust, not whatever you trust when you're on the mountaintop, that's easy. Whatever you trust when you're afraid, you're afraid of getting left out, afraid of missing out, afraid of whatever it is. There's a million different fears that we process so quickly because Satan puts oil on it, makes it slippery so we don't even recognize it as fear anymore. I think we need to start paying attention to what it is that causes us because that fear will paralyze our faith, our ability to have a relationship with God. You think about your prayer life. I mean, how honest are you in prayer? Most people, most Christians kind of walk into God's presence like this. I didn't say whoever we pray to or whatever we can verbalize with our lips. I'm saying whatever you trust to get you out of trouble, that's your God. That's your idol. After all, they're building a golden calf today. Tomorrow, they're having a feast day for the Lord. What about their hearts? They've not searched their hearts. Who searches their hearts? God is searching their hearts, and that's exactly what he's about to do. God may get our celebrations, and he may get our words, and he may get our lip service, but whoever it is that we give our fear to, whoever it is that we give our real sacrifices to, that's our God. As, look how quickly the gold flies to allay fear. Verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Now, this goes back. We didn't read all of that, but this goes back to where the Lord told them about burnt offerings and peace offerings and how not to make altars. Isn't it very nice, though, after the day after disobedience and idol making? People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Some translations say to revel. That word just literally means to have fun and to laugh and to mock. To not take themselves seriously is ultimately what the word means. Sounds so good. But then there's a shift in scene. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now this is the same phraseology in Hebrew that we find in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, when all the wickedness of their heart, their thoughts of their heart were wicked continually. Nothing but wickedness. They had corrupted themselves, the Hebrew says. Nowhere is the word used more than in Genesis chapter 6 with the people corrupting themselves. Now keep in mind at this point in Exodus 32, Moses can't see. Moses isn't omniscient. He can't, he can't see what's happening at the base of the mountain. He hadn't seen anything. He hadn't heard anything. But God uses his omniscience to inform Moses. Forty days was a great time for Moses. Can you imagine sitting in the presence of God himself for 40 days? And the more time Moses spends with God, the better Israel gets to benefit from. But Israel can't see it. Forty days is torturous for them. It's the worst thing for them. And obviously, God's presence is in both places. But he's using the awareness of his presence to search the heart of the people. But he's also searching the heart of Moses. Moses here is proving that he could be 
trusted. Israel is proving that they could not. They had learned to live, and again, lay your your life, your faith down on this. They had learned to live with a degree of separation between themselves and God. What does a, a degree of separation look like in your life? Who or what are you trusting in that brings you more peace than your personal relationship with the Lord? Is it the teaching of a teacher, the author of a book, the, a, a, a pastor or a minister of some sort? Maybe, maybe something that you give or something that you do that provides a little bit of cushion so that you don't, you don't worry about your relationship with God. But how many Christians trust those degrees of separation, but they're not standing in his presence? I'll tell you what, one degree of separation looks like the base of Mount Sinai. Sitting in the presence of Jesus personally looks like Moses up on the mountain. Say, man, these people are far from each other. No, one degree of separation is all they are. You think Israel realized they were in rebellion? You think Israel knew they were making idols? They just do them what come naturally when they're living in fear. Verse 8, they've turned aside quickly. This is what the Lord says to Moses. They have turned aside quickly. Now, if you're God, 40 days is quick. But I would say 40 days is kind of a long time to wait on somebody. They get no credit for patiently waiting for 39 days. It's that one day that they gave up. That's the day that gets counted. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. You don't get get partial credit for partial obedience, by the way. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it to sacrifice to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Can you believe in God's omniscience? He quoted them perfectly in real time. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked is a term that they would use uh, to talk about like agricultural animals that, couldn't, that wouldn't be tamed. They just, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't comply. They wouldn't work properly. Verse 10, now therefore, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot. King James says wax hot. I don't know, that just seems so much different. That my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume, destroy, devour, desolate them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is hurt. God is angry. He's been faithful. He's kept his end of the bargain. It's a righteous anger. He's not a spoiled little kid, didn't get his way. This is righteous. This is what it looks like to be just. But he's also, even in his anger, he's very composed and patient. 
The last time that we heard God speak, other than from verse 7, is in Exodus chapter 31, the previous chapter, where, where God is finishing up with Moses, talking about all of the covenant. And he's talking about the Sabbath rules. And there he gets to the end and he starts talking about rest. You know, six days you work and on the seventh you take a rest. And there's like this breath of fresh air as he finishes up and he you know, finishes the stone carvings for Moses. He hands them over to Moses and the very next thing God is talking about is his wrath toward his people from the time he talked about rest until they were disobedient at the base of the mountain. You remember, God sees everything all at once. He's heartbroken. And he may be silent, but he's still working. And now, because he's silent, his people go crazy. We're not going to get to all that today. Disobedience and rebellion, unheard of. They turn quickly into Genesis 6 wickedness. How long does it take to slide? Well, I think it all has to do with where the heart starts. And if you think your heart's good, and you think your heart is strong, you think you're moral, and you think that your heart can, you know, you, maybe you're right close to God, I'm, I, I would ask you, when God searches your heart, you need to search your heart as well, because, boy, that slide might be a lot quicker than you think it is. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, Yahweh, this is God's covenant name for all of his people, not, not my Lord. O Lord, our Yahweh, our all-being, why? Why? What in the world is Moses? Why? Well, Moses hasn't seen it. He's only heard God speak of it. But what God has already said is enough. Why would Moses say why? And so I begin to kind of study through that word. And this word doesn't just mean why. It simply means give me more information. I want to know not about what they're doing, but what are you going to do? When you talk about your, your wrath melting hot, waxing hot on them to destroy them, tell me more about that. How, I mean, Moses is lost in the moment of how are you going to do that? Why would you do it? How bad could it possibly be? What are you going to do? I just can't believe that we were just talking about rest. Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out and kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from this disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. So the first thing that I want to ask is, why did the people want to make an idol? Again, fear. Maybe we don't realize how important Moses was to them as a leader. 
He had been their only visible leader. Now, they wouldn't call him God. They didn't think he was God, but he certainly had been their savior. He had been their bridge. He had consistently served in that role. Their relationship to God was based upon their relationship to Moses. And it was through Moses that God redeemed Israel. You remember, their relationship to him through the plagues, every time there was a plague, it was Moses standing up. And they saw Moses when terrible things happened to Egypt. Every time. And if you're not aware, I won't, I don't take the time to go through it. But every plague was tied to a specific Egyptian god. And each time a plague hit, it was Moses proving more powerful than the Egyptian gods. And they saw it every time. Pharaoh was the ultimate god of all life. Even more powerful than Ra himself. The God of the sun, whom just had eclipsed for three days. And then Moses was able to declare the death of the firstborn, and Pharaoh's house felt it too. Moses. Everybody's getting in line behind Moses. And they get to the Red Sea, and it was Moses that raised his staff, and the sea parted. It was Moses that talked about manna. It was Moses that said, here's what God said. Moses was a very, very powerful man to Israel. They had seen him do things that nobody had ever even talked of doing before. It was Moses that come off of Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. It was Israel's eyes, not Israel's hearts, that had been impressed with Moses. And now that their eyes couldn't see him, their hearts were unimpressed. So God is, through this event, God is searching and testing their hearts. And Moses' heart too. So Moses is gone for 40 days. They feel like they've lost their connection to God. They're not praying. They're not calling out to God. Moses is doing all this for them. This is the very first time in a very short history that Moses is separated from the people. <clears throat> their apprehension, I get it. I get it. It's like, it's like walking on. It's like having crutches and all of a sudden not having crutches. I get it. I don't know about Moses' heart, and I'm not teaching this as truth. But if I'm Moses, I might be pretty confident. So... Moses is gone 30, 39, 40 days. We need a connection to God. We're, getting, we're going to get hungry. We need a connection to God. We need to make sure we're protected. We, we have no God anymore. Uh, Pharaoh's gone. We don't have Moses. We don't have Pharaoh. What's, what's next? Oh, we, we, we know, what, what, you know what's right below Pharaoh is those idols that Egypt, we worship for 400 almost 450 years. We know, we know those. Let's, let's get one of those back. Now, we have all the confidence in God in the world, but God ain't here. We have confidence in Moses. Moses ain't here. So what are we going to do? I don't have a lot of confidence in Egypt's God, but it's better than not having one at all. And they're afraid. And they're desperate. And their fear gave way to anger and desperation and demands. But here's what it does. It proves their heart. This rebellion proves their heart. It proves who they really were. God already knows. Amen? 
God already knows. He searches our heart all the time. He knows all things. They think they're right with him. This isn't about God being necessarily angry with them. This is a proving ground for them. They are now learning what they believe in. And God is revealing some things in their hearts. Now, I want you to notice several things about this. I want you to notice how quick. Moses is this unbelievable leader. But I want you to notice how dismissive they were of him. Very intentionally in the Hebrew, this Moses. I mean, that's his name, right? Wasn't it Moses? I mean, it's been 40 days. I don't remember his name. This Moses, who even knows what happened to this Moses? We don't even know what's become of him. We don't care about him. We just want his stuff. Moses was just yesterday's calf. They didn't love Moses. They didn't appreciate Moses. They were only using Moses to get what they wanted. Second, they don't give God credit for anything. They give it to Moses. They say Moses brought them out of Egypt, not God. This is Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. By the way, is there a time where God said Moses brought them up out of Egypt? No, there's a God every time. Well, we spent the first five minutes today. Every time God talks about it, I brought you out. I brought you out. They're not listening. It's interesting to me that they dismiss Moses as a has-been and they give him credit for rescuing them in the same breath. They've been putting their faith in the wrong place. They've given God, if they had given God the credit, their faith could outlast Moses' absence. Okay, Moses isn't here. Now it's time for us to trust God directly. But in their minds, Moses is gone, and they're convinced that they need another leader. So they say, make us gods who will go before us. Wait a minute, wait a minute. These gods just lived in your earlobes just a couple minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, but if you make them, they'll come alive. That's how idols work. You, know, you, you make them, and then they give, they give life. Aaron acquiesces, makes them an idol. No, it didn't seem, seem that there's any hesitancy on his part. Verse 6, they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings, brought sacrifices of well-being. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Boy, it just doesn't strike me right. Yesterday, when they made an idol, they built an altar before it. But today they celebrate the feast to God, they play. Here's a rule for me. Whatever idol that you substitute for God, that's the idol that you will begin to filter your relationships to people through. Whatever idol you worship is how you'll begin to directly relate to people. You say, well, I don't have any idols. You do have idols. You just may not know what they're called. You don't know what they're made out of. But we all have things that we trust. So, for instance, if you make money your God, you're going to use people to feed the bottom line. If, if perhaps sex is your God, you're going to sexualize people and see them as objects. If you make power your God, you're going to step all over people to accomplish your purpose. If you make ease and comfort your God, 
You're going to lack commitment and you're going to focus primarily on yourself. Now, the bad news is, is you'll give yourself the benefit of the doubt and you won't even recognize that you're doing that. But your God directly reflects in how you treat other people, how you think about other people. Your relationships here will always affect your relationships here. And it's a really good way to know what are my gods. Because you can see, how am I treating people? Okay, I've got a problem here. My first thought, that's my problem here. My, my attitude about this, is I've got a problem here. What am I putting in front? I want to be able to see people as Jesus. I want to be able to love people as Jesus. I want to be able to, to have compassion for brokenness. I want to be able to see through the eyes of Jesus instead of the idol that I've put in its place, his place. And it's only when we worship the true God that we treat people with dignity and respect and love and compassion that God intends them to have from his people. I think this is one of the reasons why God opposes idolatry of any kind. So how does God react? Remember, he sees in real time. He does basically four things very quickly. First, God disowns the people and he disavows any responsibility of them. I love in verse 7 how he looks at Moses. <laughs> and, and they have just said, God heard it with his own ears. Now Moses didn't hear it. God heard them say, this Moses who brought us up out of Egypt. And God responds back to Moses and says, your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Does God really think that Moses is the one that's responsible for that? No. He's seeing if Moses thinks he's the one responsible for that. We got a new puppy. If anybody would like a new puppy, I forgot what it's like to have a new puppy. I'm just kidding, Macy. She cries. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's not a lot of love lost between me and little puppies. And uh, sometimes in my house, I might look at them and say, you're a puppy, blah, da, 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 right? Disavowing any responsibility, because if it's their puppy, I don't have any responsibility of that puppy. If I don't want to get up, your puppy wants out. I wish it were that easy. Don't you wish it were that easy? Just, But that's what God does here, right? Moses, the people are going to give you credit. I'm going to give you credit too. How's Moses going to deal with God giving him credit? What's Moses' heart wanting? God already knows. Moses is about to find out. God is searching it. Second, he tells Moses, don't you stand in my way as I execute my fierce wrath. Verse 10, let me alone. In other words, step aside, Moses. If Moses walks, now listen, this is a command. This is a command. But God looks at Moses and says, step aside while I do this. I'm going to protect you. You are my real relationship. I'm going to protect you. Step aside while I wax hot. If Moses steps aside, Israel sunk. So what does Moses do? I don't know what Moses wants to do, but I know what Moses does. If Moses stands in the gap, Moses standing in the gap is Israel's only hope. God 
always opposes sin. But if someone would step in the gap, he loves to show compassion and mercy. Will Moses reveal a selfish heart or will Moses reveal God's heart? Third, God, and I don't know, I've not seen this until recently, but God actually offers Moses the opportunity to start over with him, just the two of us. I'm wiping Israel out. Now, I've wiped out the whole world before. I'll wipe out Israel and I'll start over with you. I've already got an appointed people now. There wasn't a Jewish people with Noah. That came along with Abraham. But I'm going to wipe out every, I'll wipe out every Jew, Moses, and I'll start over fresh with you. How would you like to be the father of the faith? The God of Moses, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That experiment failed. So step aside so I can protect you, and I will give you the kingdom. This might have been a shock to Moses. He heard it. And it might have been tempting to some people. God's going to start over. He started over with Noah. Started over with Abraham. Moses is going to replace Abraham. I don't, Lord, that's a, hmm. Moses would be relieved and all of these people who don't really like him, the sole patriarch of God's chosen people. But look how Moses responds. He doesn't even think about it. Immediately, Moses isn't concerned about his glory. Moses is concerned about God's glory. Immediately. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. The Bible says that he was the most humble man in the entire earth. God already knew it. Moses didn't know it. Moses didn't know know what he would do if he was offered that kind of power. Now he does. He humbles himself before the glory of God. That's what a leader needs to be able to have. God knew what Moses needed. God's testing Moses, and God's testing Israel. So Moses convinces God not to destroy his people. And I want you to look at these arguments because they really kind of help inform us of of some things. So Moses acknowledges that the people are gods. God had told Moses, they're your people, Moses. You brought them out of Egypt. Moses says, no, they're yours. Moses never accepts them. In verse 11, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Not even our people. You brought them out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Not me. I had nothing to do with that. I was the one who was saying, I don't know what to do. What's in your hand, Moses? This staff, raise it. Lord, I've not known one step. Every time you've asked me to do something, I've been terrified to do it. Perfect, Moses. You're the leader I want to use. Second, Moses appeals to God's honor and reputation. So you're going to deliver Israel out of Egypt, and then Egypt's going to find out that you destroyed your people in the mountains? What's, what's the neighbors going to think? Your glory is on the line here. You don't want to come to this moment and throw it all away because Egypt, your reputation to Egypt matters too. Oh, relent, Lord. Please relent because 
I don't know. I know that God, that Moses is trying to protect his people, but it seems to me he cares what Egypt thinks too about God's glory. Moses is becoming missional. God, your honor is bound up with your people. Your honor is bound up with your people. So be merciful. And finally, he reminds him in verse 30, 13, Moses says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by yourself that you were going to multiply them? Can you imagine Moses quoting Scripture to God himself? Let me remind you, Lord, of what you said. If God had broken his promise to Abraham, he could never be trusted again. He could never be called faithful and true. Moses, when offered credit and honor, gives them both to God. And God didn't destroy Israel. God always knew he wasn't going to destroy Israel. Israel is going to give birth to the Messiah. But he deliberately put Moses into this crucial place of intercession. Moses' heart may grow hard when he has to deal with these people day in and day out. But God gave Moses a very special gift in helping reveal his heart to him. He also gave Israel a very special gift in revealing their heart to them. They needed to repent. And many of them will as a result of this. In this moment of searching, Moses develops the heart of God. What kind of faith do they really have? What kind of heart does Moses really have? Is he arrogant? Will he take credit? Does he want to be the new Abraham? Or is he satisfied obeying what God has called him to do? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, this, this is Moses. God is searching and testing the hearts and minds of his people to put his heart and eyes in them. Not to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. Deuteronomy 8, 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. James chapter 1, verse 2, 3 and 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing God tells us that he is never going to tempt us to sin James 1 13 but he does allow tests to search our hearts and these tests that we face are not designed to lead us to sin they reveal the sin that is already there in our hearts ready to show itself given the opportunity and who or what you surround yourself, who or what you worship will determine whose heart you cultivate. We have two opposing directions here. 
God's people are focused on fear and self. They erect idols. They worship idols. They place credit in the wrong place. They create more distance between themselves and God. They play rather than worship. Rather than remembering their vows and God's promises, they choose to follow a man who says what they want to hear. And they develop a self-honoring, fear-based religion. But Moses is in God's presence. And he refuses idolatry. He contends for God's glory. He reminds God of his nature and his promises. And he refuses honor in the presence of God. And he becomes missional and develops God's heart for people. The time that you spend in the presence of God and his word will determine what kind of heart you are developing. This is why God disciplines those he loves. He chastens his children so they can develop his heart, not so they can be punished, so they can develop his heart. It'll determine if your heart will repent or relent when it's searched. It'll become harder or it'll become softer as God reveals it to you. So we come to the end of the day and I'm asking, if you examine your heart, examine your own heart. We're commanded to examine our own heart. God is examining our heart already. Examine your own heart and see, are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you becoming humble? Are you becoming more compassionate, more missional, more selfless? Or is your heart proving that you're worshiping idols to fortify yourself, and to protect yourself? The next time you're put to the test, some kind of conflict in your life, conflict with a loved one or bad news or horrible traffic or poor service at a restaurant, and you react in an ungodly way, and you know this is not the way Jesus would act, Remember that God ordains some searching and tests to know what is really in our hearts. And this is His grace. His conviction is His grace to reveal our need of Him more clearly, throw ourselves on His mercy, and find humility in His presence. When God tests His children, it is a very valuable thing. David begged for God's searching. And testing, asking him to examine his heart and see if they were true to him. This was in Psalm 26. Do you want to know what's in your heart? Many people don't want to know what's in their heart. You really want to know what's in your heart? Listen to yourself. Pay attention to how you feel when you don't get your way. Pay attention to what you regard when you feel desperate. How you talk about the people you're supposed to love. What you listen to. What you fill your eyes with. These are clues of whether or not you're at the mountaintop in the presence of God or you're at the base completely unaware of what you're turning your life into. Do you want to know your heart? God is searching it. He already knows. And the circumstances of your life are helping you realize where, what, how you need to respond to his grace and his mercy. Let's pray together.
Lord, we love you this morning. We're grateful for your word. We just pray that you would give us grace to be able to hear what you would say to us. I pray that you'd move me completely out of the way, that we'd just be able to hear what the searcher of our hearts and minds would say to us in this day and for this age. We pray for wisdom. We pray for discernment. We pray for love. And Lord, if necessary, we pray for a brokenness. Nobody wants to be afraid, but Lord, if there's some things in our life that need to help us identify what's really going on in our heart. And may we love you with all of it. And all of our soul. All of our mind. And all of our strength. We give you the glory and honor this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to ask you just to stay seated. And I want us to keep kind of a posture of prayer. And if you would be willing to ask God to reveal your heart to you. He knows it. He already knows your heart. Reveal your heart to you. To be able to see what idols you're crafting. To see what things you rely on. To see how many degrees of separation you are from Him. Would you just spend a moment and just give Him permission. Ask Him for eyes that you may see the reality of what's going on inside of you and what's keeping you from looking more and more like Jesus day by day. finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.